quickly remedy. So everybody, thank you so much for joining us here. Mic drop, regularly scheduled call, 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. Central. Know that because that's where I'm at right now. 5.30 p.m. Pacific time. Going to be talking about the Hispanic vote nationally, um, a relatively undiscussed dynamic still coming out of the midterms. We all know that Florida kind of did um, a peculiar job of keeping itself away from uh, the national trend of limiting damage uh, by Democrats. Florida was the one state that fully saw the effect of a red wave. And I want to talk a little bit about that because as we get closer into this cycle, as candidates on the Republican side start edging further and further towards the precipice of jumping into this, one of the dominant narratives is going to be the Hispanic vote and DeSantis's ability to reconstitute what he did in Florida nationally. And I want to talk about the chances of that. I want to talk about what happened in Florida with the Democrats, the Democratic Party and the Latino vote. I want to talk about Republicans, what happened with Republicans and the Latino vote. I want to talk about why the Hispanic constituency in Florida is both different and the same, where those similarities are likely transferable and where they're not. So we're going to on a tight time frame today, guys. We're going to do one hour. So if you've got questions, let me turn on the queue. Go ahead and jump into the queue um, because uh, if we wait too long and you guys know how I talk, we're going to find ourselves rapidly uh, running into our one-hour time deadline. And if that happens, then I'm going to have to shut it off without doing too many questions. And I don't like to do that because, again, it's called calling for a reason. The, the goal here is not to necessarily listen to a Mike Madrid soliloquy. It's to get uh, some of the answers that I hopefully can provide as a practitioner or somebody who actually does campaigns to give you guys some greater insight on how I would be approaching these races, what dynamics I'm looking for. No surprise to you guys that I'm concentrating a little bit more on the Latino vote and probably will be for the next few episodes as I'm working towards the completion um, of this book, which will be due out in spring of 2024. We'll be talking a lot about that later. Got a long time until we get there. But as I'm uncovering a lot more of the data and the research, uh, most of this stuff, of course, is is all um, you know anecdotal stuff and work experience that I've been engaged in and campaigns on both sides of the aisle. Uh, I've seen how Democrats do it. I've seen how Republicans do it. I've seen how each side does it right because they both do a lot of things right. And I've seen how both sides do a lot of things wrong. And we'll be talking about um, all of that. Again, I'll be putting all of that into a book form. Um, where we'll be catalyzing hopefully a broader discussion around the 2024 spring time frame, which will be when most of the primaries on both sides of the aisle will be deep, deep into deciding who it is that they're going to be choosing for their nominee for president. And, of course, I'll be handicapping uh, some of their strengths and weaknesses as it relates to the Hispanic vote, which is clearly going to be determinative in the map to 270 uh, in in um, November of 2024. I can't believe it's already presidential election season uh, time, guys. It's kind of frightening. It just never seems to end, right? But for those of us who are, are kind of junkies and focused on this stuff, um, probably wouldn't have it any other way. But again, here we are. So let me jump into uh, Florida and talk a little bit about the dynamics of Florida. Again, I'm not a Florida expert. I've done some work there. I did my first round of campaign work, um, early consulting work, for Jeb Bush's reelect for governor, which would put that, I don't even remember what year that was. 2002 would be, have been the reelect. Remember the first time flying into Miami, had a meeting with Mike Murphy, who was the general consultant on the campaign. Mike, of course, is a good friend. I know a lot of you guys listen to him. I think it's on Hacks and Flax. I think is, is he and Axelrod do a great podcast. Uh, Murphy and I still talk a lot about this. I taught with him at USC with Simone Sanders uh, in, um, in 2019. And um, still regularly um, either am a, a co-host with Mike on various shows or appear with him on a lot of California-based uh, panels. So Murphy, uh, of course, is one of the few Republicans who has always gotten this and he's always brought in, uh, I think, some of the experts in the space uh, and at a young age, gave me the opportunity to really, I think, kind of, he gave me a lot of leash to really try out some new things that, that seems to work and work quite well. 
at that time, Florida had extremely wild gyrations in terms of turnout, like really, really big. California is pretty significant. All states are, are, are considerable, but Florida was like off the charts at that time. And a lot of it had to do with the changing demography of the state. I don't want to get too deep into it because that was, again, 20 years ago. It's a long time ago. Um, but we all know, I think, since that time, even since that 2000 race, Republicans tend to win statewide. Not always. Of course, there's always exceptions. But the demography of that state is moving decidedly more Republican. And as I've shared with you guys before, these two states that have historically been linchpins to the 270 map, especially for Republicans, absolutely critical for Republicans, Ohio and Florida, I don't believe that either are anymore. Um, in fact, Joe Biden proved that. Um, and demographically, as the country repositions and reorients, I think that Ohio is certainly more Republican than Florida. I don't think it's all that competitive a state anymore. Um, I think Florida is a lot less competitive than it looks like it does on paper. Um, setting aside the fact, and it's an important set aside, I don't mean to dismiss it, but, you know, DeSantis barely won his, his election effort. He, of course, wins commandingly for re-election. And this is one of the narratives that is not talked about very often. Okay, um, if you guys will remember, a few weeks prior to Election Day, Gavin Newsom, governor of my state, um, deepest blue, big state, uh, was running ads, billboards, social media ads, basically taunting DeSantis because a lot of the polling um, had DeSantis winning, but winning by a much, much smaller margin than he actually won by. Um, DeSantis, to his credit, kind of ignored uh, the bait, didn't take it, and actually ends up winning um, by a much bigger margin than Gavin Newsom did in Florida. Uh, and it was unexpected. I'm not going to guess as to whether their internals were showing it or not. They will always say, of course, they were, and they knew it the whole time. History would tell me that it was probably not likely. It's really much more of a demographic, uh, a function of demography than it is a function of smart political campaigning. It doesn't mean that they aren't and haven't been doing the right things and haven't been smart because I think they have, especially at this moment in time, they're showing tremendous discipline. But the truth of the matter is demography tells us a lot more about political outcomes than political consulting does. You know, it doesn't necessarily make me very popular with my fellow political consultants, but as you guys know, I really don't, don't give a fuck. So having said all of that, uh, let's talk about the Hispanic vote in Florida. And as I've shared with you before, the common stereotype, the common myth about, uh, and it's true, myths can be true, right, is the Cuban vote is really what's determinative in Florida. Um, that has historically been true. We are now at a point where Puerto Ricans match and probably outnumber Cubans in terms of raw votes. That's a pretty significant change. And it should be more significant because Puerto Ricans tends to be a very pro-democratic constituency. In fact, the only Hispanic subgroup that is more pro-democratic than Puerto Ricans are Mexican-Americans, which really has not been that determinative a group in Florida up until recently. And again, when I say determinative, I'm really talking about pretty small numbers. I should actually say measurable more than determinative. Mexican-Americans make up the fourth largest Hispanic subgroup in Florida. Okay, right. It's it's. Puerto Ricans, Cubans are one and two, depends on what math you look at. Puerto Ricans will outnumber Cubans in the next two, four uh, years. And then you have Venezuelans. There's a large Venezuelan diaspora coming in third. And then you have Mexican-Americans, which will probably grow as the uh, Florida economy continues to do uh, quite well. Large service-based economy, obviously, in Florida. There's a lot of tourism. They also build. Florida, as I am reminded, state motto is they're open for business. This is a state where you can build huge draw for the construction trades, huge draw for service sector workers, huge need for labor and support, especially when the hurricanes destroy half the state every year and they've got to rebuild. Those are not white people that are rebuilding. They're overwhelmingly Hispanics, probably predominantly Mexican-Americans, not unlike Hurricane Katrina, right? We saw a huge demographic change there. Big dislocation of African-Americans in the Deep South, uh, Louisiana, big dislocation of whites 
huge importation of Mexican workers who literally rebuilt that part of the country and stayed there. And now you're seeing very large Mexican-American, Hispanic diaspora. So again, sorry about the aside, but um, those are the four key constituencies for Florida. And again, it's unique, very unique in American politics. Okay. Now there's a lot of uniqueness and most of this, you know, so I, I don't spend a whole lot of time on Cubans except for when I'm explaining the purposes, why they are an exception to the Latino vote. And the quick, short, easy answer, of course, is this response to quote unquote communism or socialism, which of course is peculiar because they're essentially choosing one authoritarian figure over another um, because we never saw communism, I think, implemented the way that the textbooks would say it would, which was Castro was an authoritarian figure as much as he was a communist. In the same way, Donald Trump was an authoritarian figure, an aspiring one anyway, in the same way he would suggest he was a capitalist figure. Neither of them are entirely accurate. They were just authoritarian personalities. Cubans, of course, flocked to that in the 2020 election um, in a way that they did not in the 2016 election. And I want to talk about why. Okay, There's two main reasons as to why. The first is tactical. And that is there was clearly a very coordinated, sophisticated, um, methodical campaign on social media channels to drive an incredible amount of misinformation, disinformation, um, and this kind of um, anti-communist messaging. A lot of it coming directly from Latin American countries um, via chat groups where WhatsApp is an extremely popular social media application. In fact, it's the primary communications mechanism in Central and South uh, America. Okay, it is the, the primary. If you go everywhere from Brazil and uh, to Mexico, every state in between, WhatsApp is the medium of communications that is used. And those emigres to the United States are no different, and especially extended family, even second or third generation that is looking to communicate with family back home, maintain the use of that social media channel. It's almost entirely unregulated. Okay, It's not like Facebook. By the way, congratulations, Donald Trump being reinstated back on Facebook and Instagram, I think as we speak. So at some point, uh, Donald Trump will be back on on um, Facebook and back on Instagram. Um, thanks, Meta. Thanks, Facebook. Thanks, Zuckerberg. Just in time for the presidential campaign, presidential elections. Um, and again, there's going to be a, a, a wide, wild rush of crazy activity on social media that will be unlike anything we have ever seen. And I say unlike anything we've ever seen because going forward, the advent and changes in social media and technology platforms generally means that every two years we are going to have much further advanced systems of communications, of targeting, of messaging than we had in the last presidential cycle and even the last midterm cycle. Okay, I remember um, was Howard Dean in 2004. Does everybody remember Howard Dean and not just the scream and losing in Iowa, the Iowa caucuses, but Howard Dean reinvented political campaign contributions. He was the first candidate to kind of snowball money by getting large amounts of small donor contributions nationally. He was the first candidate to do that, and it really propelled this Vermont progressive no-name guy who was running from the left onto the national stage. Now, we should have known it then, but again, this is 2004. This is before Twitter was a thing, that the Internet wasn't necessarily reflective of the overall electorate. But the, the reason I'm bringing up 2004 is literally every campaign cycle since then, we have looked at uh, a redefinition of the way campaigns are run in presidential campaign cycles. 2004 is Dean bundling money and raising small donor contributions to make his really marginalized, sideline, progressive, ultra-progressive campaign viable. In 2008, Obama starts to introduce organizing on uh, Facebook. It takes uh, uh, goes on steroids for the reelect. Um, in 2012, uh, 2016, of course, we have the Russian influence. Um, in the campaigns where Donald Trump uh, overperforms with non-college educated white voters, we see suppression 
amongst uh, African-American voters. We see a drop off on the expected turnout rates of Hispanic voters, all part of suppression strategies that the Russians were using. 2020 uh, Lincoln Project comes on the um, scene and redefines what how uh, influence can happen in a political campaign using video. No one will really remember any of these campaigns in the 2024 cycle because something else will emerge to take its place. That's just the nature of technological advances in campaigns. So that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to change um, um, for this next election cycle. And my strong suspicion is there's going to be a huge amount of organizing and advocacy that's going to be done in the Hispanic community because it's highly unregulated. Spanish language platforms Think, think of how unregulated English platforms are right now, right? We've been fighting, yelling at Facebook, saying there's bad shit going on. There's Russian influence. There's Chinese influence. There's Iranian influence. There's all these foreign actors. You can't trace this money. This rise of domestic uh, extremism, uh, white supremacy, hate speech, all of this stuff is being organized on, on the Facebook platform. Twitter, of course, is the sewer that it's always been and only gotten worse under Elon Musk. There's just no regulatory framework. Government can't catch up and regulate it as fast as the technology is evolving. So that's in English, guys. If you think about it in Spanish, or if you think about even other languages in other, I, I hate to use the term, quote unquote, less sophisticated democracies, the truth of the matter is the United States is not all that sophisticated uh, com uh, in comparison to other democracies, especially Western Europe, that we have seen um, withstand some of the um, incursions by foreign actors, namely the Russians. Okay. So all of this creates this huge opening for very sophisticated operations to come in and start influencing democracies and trying to destabilize a lot of what has um, emanated, uh, trying to destabilize our elections and, and advance on what has emanated from the 16 cycle most specifically I think they did a pretty good job in 2020, our own uh, uh, domestic government. I think the U.S. government, the feds did a pretty good job. It wasn't great. We were seeing a lot of things at the Lincoln Project that um, were a little bit hair-raising and realizing this is, not, this is not the Trump campaign. This is not Republican operatives. We had the benefit of knowing the Republican operatives on the other sides, at least the sophisticated ones. The Brad Parscalis of the world who weren't really political consultants. They were really timeshare sell vendors or you know, real estate marketers, we weren't worried about them. We were worried about some of the really sophisticated messaging and really nuanced messaging strategies that were more um, reflective of an advanced government who was doing military psyops. And that's, what was, that's what's been going on. So um, again, long uh, Mike Madrid detour there. What I was actually getting at was the openings on Spanish language platforms had a really transformative effect of creating what I call multi-generational coalitions. For the longest time, there was a big discernment between Cubans of the first generation, meaning those that had migrated from the island, uh, either as refugees or in any other capacity, their sons and daughters who had moved, to, by the way, those, those first generation Cuban emigres were very, very Republican. There's a deep, long history of their involvement going back to the Nixon administration of Cuban activism and kind of a Cold War parlance. Their sons and daughters were actually decidedly more democratic, uh, not a majority yet, but their grandchildren were. The grandchildren of these emigres were voting a majority democratic. And you could literally discern Cuban voting patterns um, based off of generational differences. Incidentally, this was the first time I identified this dynamic in the mid-1990s because although it was particularly pronounced amongst Cubans, it was actually reflective of virtually every Hispanic subgroups, including Mexican-Americans, the big ones. Puerto Ricans, of course, can't really discern it that way because all the Puerto Ricans are Americans. The question really became uh, how their politicization process occurred after leaving the island of Puerto Rico and coming largely to either uh, New York, which was the largest point of destination for many years, or now the I-5 corridor or the 15 corridor in Florida, whatever the number is, um, where Puerto Ricans now again um, outnumber Cubans in the uh, in, in the state of Florida. So, um, 
So that's one um, one dynamic that has uh, occurred. And again, this I think is this is transferable. This is something we're going to have to be very wary of. There's also a lot of this type of activity happening in the Rio Grande Valley. Okay, and that where you saw decided Republican shifts, Hispanic shifts to the right tended to be in areas where there were sp- dense Hispanic Spanish speaking Hispanic precincts. Excuse me because it allowed for communications medium that was uncontested largely by the Democrats, okay? And this is really important. If Republicans are moving uh, Hispanic voters in Hispanic dense neighborhoods with high Spanish speakers, that is literally eating directly into the core of Democratic base vote. Okay, I've, I've talked a lot about and spent a lot of time talking about assimilation and further generations and over second and third generations, Latinos, Hispanics become more Republican as they kind of move towards a more white identity, as they become English dominant, as they go to college and buy homes, as they intermarry uh, with other ethnicities and races. That's all a typical assimilative pattern. But what we were seeing in 2020 and continued in 2022 was not just that assimilative pattern continuing to happen on overdrive, but you were starting to see counties like Miami-Dade and regions like the Rio Grande Valley, which are dominant Spanish-speaking communities, moving by huge numbers to the right. That is not a natural um, realignment. That is happening because there is tremendous amount of paid resources, effort, energy, and money put into making that movement happen. And it doesn't have to happen in a huge way to have a large statewide effect, but it did. And that's something that cannot and should not be dismissed by Democrats, which is what they're doing. They're just like, well, this is just this weird WhatsApp phenomenon, and there's really no infrastructure to respond to it. Now, I'm notice I said um, um, th- that, well, I said they're moving towards Republicans, but I'm not for a moment believing that Republicans were advancing this sophisticated a strategy. I believe that it is something that is external to U.S. politics. There's no other way around it. There are no, there are no Republican, there's no Democrat political consultants for that matter that are that sophisticated or that well resourced for that small a market niche in our electoral politics, especially in Spanish. That creature does not exist. It doesn't. This is the function of, of a government operated government-backed effort that is manifesting itself in a lot of these Spanish-speaking precincts, okay? But again, there's a larger problem here too. If you're a Democrat concerned about that shift, it's not just in these precincts. It's not just in the Rio Grande Valley. It's not just happening in Hispanic dense precincts. It's not just happening in Miami-Dade. It's happening amongst the fastest growing segment of the Hispanic electorate, which is second and third generation voters, okay? which takes us back. So that's the Cuban diaspora. That's the Cuban effect. Okay, the last time Cubans or Republicans won Miami-Dade was 2002, I believe, an expert told me, uh, reminded me. I thought that it had, had I, I thought historically it had never gone, or at least hadn't since the Mariel boatless, boatless in the 70s. That's not accurate. Um, Bush in that 2002 year uh, won it during his re-election effort. So, um, where we were looking at in 2020 was could the influx of Puerto Ricans who left the island after the hurricane in massive numbers offset the Cuban overperformance that we were we were expecting? The answer came in uh, mathematically, yes, sure, that's a possibility, but as a practical matter, they did not. Puerto Ricans shifted to the right also, and as I mentioned, Venezuelans largely driven by anti-communism, anti-socialism message, in response to the communist problems that they've been having in Venezuela moved. I don't want to overstate the numbers here. We're talking Venezuelans are literally one or 2% of the Floridian vote. Nationally, it's less than one half of 1%. It's like minuscule, but I'm trying to get into the weeds a little bit and talk about why this stuff is happening. And as Mexican Americans start to grow, we also have to be cognizant of the fact that in all likelihood, there was this pretty significant shift to the right amongst Mexican-American voters in Florida as well. Now, there's a different media echo chamber that's going on there. You have DeSantis and the Republicans who took a decidedly different uh, turn on COVID. 
Incidentally, I don't think we've done enough research or analysis on the COVID response uh, and how that affected Latino voters. As I was talking to all of you guys during the campaign in 2020, COVID, um, the essential workforce in this country overwhelmingly is Hispanic. The reason we all had the luxury of, of isolating and staying at home and working remotely was because a largely Mexican-American, largely Latino workforce was making it possible to deliver food to our homes, to uh, keep goods movement going into grocery stores, to keep all of the service sector economy going. The point being, um, by a very large disproportionate number of Hispanics were not isolating in place. They were making, keeping the economy running. They were just doing it uh, to a lesser degree. Again, a lot of these are restaurant workers. A lot of these are hotel workers. A lot of these are in the entertainment industry. A lot of what Florida is built on is this Hispanic workforce. And what happened was when all of this, when some of these early shutdowns were happening or the economy was, was closing, that's what, those were the workers that were being affected by it. Now in Florida, of course, those didn't happen at scale. A commensurate response at the voting booth. Where you saw these shutdowns happen, you saw a pushback on uh, some of these blue states that uh, were driving people out of work. Um, I'm not saying it wasn't the right policy decision. I'm saying this is the political outcomes of it. And so that becomes um, part of the narrative that we have not really examined or looked at yet. A lot of Democrats were saying the fact that they couldn't do a lot of Latino ground organizing was the reason why they weren't able to get the Hispanic numbers that they wanted. I'm calling bullshit on that. That's just completely wrong. There's no democratic operation. Again, I've worked with them for many, many years, worked with organized labor on some of these uh, turnout programs for initiatives. You can't increase national Hispanic turnout by three to five percentage points simply by door-to-door canvassing. That's not the way it works. Just not possible. If it was possible, we wouldn't be having any of these political discussions because the Democrats would be dominating virtually every state in the union and would so completely isolate the Republican base that they would never win an election again. So it's not possible. I'm not saying it is important work. I'm not saying it shouldn't be continued, but I also want to put in perspective as somebody who's done this for many, many years to think that you can go door to door and turn out the vote by three to 5% nationally is just complete bullshit. That's not what happened. Now, we also know in Florida that the Democrats pulled the stakes, right? The Democrats on the ground were saying, we need money, we need money, calling in the cavalry, calling in for help, trying to get assistance for Val Demings, trying to get assistance for some of these uh, congressional races that were, were in play, and it all fell on deaf ears. Okay, I think there was a $2 million commitment, I think, or something like that, compared to a $60 million spend at the same time uh, four years ago like extraordinary um, decline in support by the Democrats. So all that money gets yanked out. The national narrative is moving against them. Republicans double, triple down uh, and execute their plans um, flawlessly. They make the investments that they have been making in, um, in Miami and in, in South Florida. And uh, that combined with those three elements combined with um, the um, – Spanish-speaking platforms and applications that I'm talking about. By the way, let me put that in perspective. I'm not saying that that moved 50% of voters. I'm saying that did have the net effect of moving between 3% to 7% of that vote, okay? Maybe bigger. I think that's probably a real stretch. Um, I've always believed that misinformation targeting Hispanics in English is a bigger threat, like on Fox News, than it is targeting – Spanish-speaking Latinos. Why? There's there's more of them. In fact, um, writing a whole chapter on, on Spanish language polling, or at least a big part of a chapter, if you self, when, when you're doing polling, one of the best way to identify speakers, Spanish speakers, is to use a bilingual phone operator and ask them if they want to have the um, conversation in English or in Spanish. Okay, and what you can do is if you lose that phone call, you can actually continue and and phone them back and then in Spanish begin the conversation to try to mitigate any losses. 
Most pollsters, most credible pollsters are going to tell you that if you're getting a 14, 15% Spanish speaking interview pool, meaning of, of 100 polled Latinos, if 15% are in Spanish, that's sufficient to reflect the overall electorate, not the population, but the electorate to mirror those who are actually voting. That's a baseline number that I've looked at and, and agreed with since the mid-1990s, a very, very long time. There's this very strong stereotype in the media and with politicians that somehow you know, people think that if you ask the average English-speaking person in this country about Latinos, how many speak you know, Spanish, almost all of them are going to say more than half of Latinos are Spanish speakers. It's not even close to being true. Okay, The Spanish-dominant, Spanish-exclusive percentage of the Latino electorate is about 15%, 1-5, Okay, So there's tendency to oversample Spanish speakers skews poll results to the left. If you keep it at 15%, you're going to get a pretty accurate reflection of the community. If you are going to oversample, you should oversample to the right because it will be more reflective. It will be more conservative, but not as out of whack conservative as going and skewing to the left. What that means is the more Spanish dominant the interviewee is, the more likely they are to have far left strong opinions on a wide range of topics. It's very important. The exception of social issues, but absolutely on economic issues, education policy, immigration policy, which I guess is a cultural issue, uh, gun control issues, all of these issues. All of that changes as the Hispanic interviewee becomes more English dominant or bilingual. That, uh, that politicization assimilation process continues and the polling results begin to measure the overall electorate, okay? And then finally, there's one other dynamic too, and this, this was really brought out, I think, in a great way in a New Yorker article that ran today uh, by um, a great reporter who's doing great work. Her name is Stefania Taladrid, and she uh, wrote a piece for the New Yorker on this dynamic that is our topic today, and she really dug into uh, the dynamics of everything that I've been talking about, but also one other critical element that I want to discuss, and that is there seems to be this strong push from the bottom up of political leaders, Republican political leaders in each one of these diasporas that is organizing, and you're starting to see some infrastructure that's not coming from the RNC, it's not coming from the DeSantis campaign, it's literally coming from the ground up in these communities. Now, is this actually having a tangible effect on the numbers? Maybe, maybe not. If it is, it's very marginal. But these are the types of things that I'm looking for as somebody who's watching for campaigns is organic developments that are happening without paid efforts, without campaign staff organizing and pulling these things together. When you start getting calls to campaign headquarters of people saying, hey, we've got 50, 60, 70, 100 Hispanic small business owners, down here uh, in South Florida, we want to do something for the campaign. That's a sign. That's a sign of intensity and it's a sign of something happening on the ground. It's something that I'm paying attention to because what I'm going to do then as a campaign guy is I'm going to go in, I'm going to start looking at my analytics a little bit deeper and sharper in these communities. I'm going to spend a little bit of money to test as to whether or not I'm getting traction on some of my messages, and I'll probably do a slightly larger oversample the next time I go out and poll because it's going to tell me whether or not this anecdotal evidence I'm seeing on the ground actually has something quantifiable behind it. And if it does, well, shit, that's a huge opening. It's a huge opportunity to go spend some money and steal some votes from the Democrats. And again, that's what I was really, 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 really good at for 30 years. My job was to go in and steal vote share from Democrats while the Democrats were spending gazillions of dollars focused on turnout. And let me talk about this for just a second, okay? Republicans focus on the margins. Democrats focus on turnout. Let me explain what that means, okay? When you're winning 70% of a vote 
it behooves you mathematically to get as much of that vote out as possible. And so Democrats would spend millions of dollars hiring canvassers, hiring professional telephone bankers, hiring people to go out and try to get literally drag, knock and drag is what we call it, knocking on doors and dragging voters to the polls. And they would do that to try to increase the voter model one, two, three points in a state the size of California. It's extraordinarily expensive. It's also why I know, and I can quantifiably say, as well as anybody, to try to do this, try to try to do this nationally is complete bullshit. It's just not happening. It's extremely hard. It's extremely expensive, and it's extremely rare to get this kind of funding because most consultants will say, if you have that kind of money to gamble on a low propensity, low turnout voter, you should just double down and spend it on persuading more high turnout voters. Every campaign consultant worth his salt or her salt is going to say that. So it's very rare that the Democratic Party would make these investments in turning out Hispanic voters. But as somebody who's watching the vote, I could see it. I could see when it was happening from a number of different ways. I could see the buys, the reported, the spend. You have to report uh, how much money you're putting on Spanish language mediums. And that becomes immediately reportable. So I would track that. And when I would see these numbers go up, if they were significant, high six, seven-figure buys, I would go, well, shit, the Democrats are serious this time. They're looking hard at getting this vote. And they would spend maybe $10 million, literally $10 million, trying to move 1% or 2% of Latino voters up with the belief, correctly, that they could win 70% of all of those voters that they're turning out. You follow? That's the focus that Democrats look at. They're looking to increase turnout because if you're turning out a base where you're overwhelmingly winning that demographic, just math says who cares if you turn out three Republicans, if you're also turning out seven Democrats, you win that race every time. My job was to go in and look at and assess the spend and say, how can I look at all of this other demographics? How can I use analytics, good polling techniques, and my understanding and knowledge of the Hispanic community to offset that 1% or 2% increase by peeling off and stealing all these other medium high propensity Hispanic voters that they're no longer paying attention to because they're trying to increase the voter model? Does that make sense? And so what would happen is the Democrats would go and spend $10 million trying to increase the voter model by one or two points. I could see that coming because you can't do that quietly. There's, there's paper trails all over the place on doing that. I could then go get the money, probably one-tenth of that, about a million dollars, and I could message and communicate to shift the remaining vote by one or two percentage points. Follow? So what would happen? The Democrats would get 2% up. I would move the point 2% down. There'd be a net zero effect. And that would be really problematic for the Democrats who would go, well, shit, what the hell happened here? We spent $10 million trying to increase the vote. We finally got it done. The raw number totals are there. But if we look at the precinct analysis, we're losing the core vote by 2% when they should have been moving the whole pie up by two points. That was my job. Okay, That's why I got really, really good at figuring out these different lanes that Latinos vote on. Are they generational? Are they gender? Are they uh, removed from the immigrant experience by a certain number of, of degrees? Are they college educated? Are they military veterans? Are they evangelicals? That was my job, right? Democrats were much more blunt about it. It was just turn them out. Turn them out, turn them out, turn them out. And it's also why you got have differences in consultants like Mike Madrid and Chuck Rocha, who I did the Latino Vote podcast with, where Chuck is really focused on ground game activities. And he's like, if you give me X amount of dollars, I can turn the vote out this much. And that's great. I don't do that. I'm not an expert at that. And in fact, Chuck is probably the best in the business at it. What I'm good at is stealing the votes on the back end by understanding the demographics better than anybody on either side. And that's why over the years, as we would do campaigns against each other, we've now been able to compare notes and say, what were you doing in this race then? Um, what were you guys thinking and what were you seeing? Um, because his job is, again, just to focus on turnout. My job is to focus on the margin, the percentage break, to not allow them to win 70-30. If it was 65-35, I moved the voter model by five points. 
they would have to increase the vote margin by five percentage points in order to make up for the gap that they're losing. So hope that was a good um, explanatory. Um, um, I hope that was a good explanation. Explanatory nothing. I hope that was just a good explanation. Uh, any? Qu- I'm seeing a lot of questions in the chat, but are there any callers that want to jump up into the queue? We're running up into about 40 minutes, so I've got 20 minutes of questions, and I'm seeing some of my regular folks, so I know there's a couple of questions. If you guys jump in earlier, it's helpful because it will. There, I know that there are new callers, too, that are always a little bit afraid to just jump in and ask, and my stronger callers uh, kind of, kind of um, condition the environment better. So let me, let me go through some of those questions in the chat. Uh, so to, this is from Peg. So to win elections, we need to not only turn out voters, but we need to also pick off voters who aren't supporting our candidate and see if we can move those voters towards our candidate. That's exactly right. So, so if you're a Democrat, let me tell you, let me tell you how both parties should approach this. If you, so, so now, so now that Mike Madrid has spilled the secret, right, on what it is that I've been doing and kind of frustrating Democrats in a lot of places, what, how do I counter that as a Democrat? Well, first of all, let me say this. The Democrats are making this really, really easy. And in fact, this rightward shift that is happening is not because the Republicans have figured this out. I've said this a lot. It's happening despite their best efforts, and it's happening because of natural demographic change. See, most Democrats have this orthodoxy, this belief that Hispanic voters are really not much different from black voters, are basically the same. If you're a non-white voter, you're going to respond to these oppression and racial identity messages to the same degree. That is not the case with Hispanic voters. Two-thirds of Hispanic voters don't see ourselves as any different than typical Americans. That comes from Pew Research. That's not Mike Madrid saying that. That's the gold standard of Pew, of, 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 Hispanic, of, of Hispanic research. Nonpartisan, objective, largest foundation that does this kind of work. Two-thirds of Hispanics don't see themselves as any different. So if your party is communicating to them as though they are different, that you are distinct, that you need government intervention to stop this type of oppression, that you need these government programs, it's, it's unrelatable to two-thirds. You're immediately cutting off two-thirds with a message that is unrelatable. But it's so central to democratic orthodoxy that they can't see their way around it. They can't, can't help themselves out. In the same way Republicans get caught up in their own orthodoxy and start believing their own bullshit. I remember listening before Matt Schlapp's recent problems, he did this whole thing at CPAC on why um, all Latinos are responsive to anti-communist, anti-socialism messaging. Okay, it's complete horseshit. What it's based off of is this small Cuban experience where Cubans are show up and get involved in the Republican Party. Cubans have been very centrally uh, important to Republicans in a key state like Florida for so long and for so many years that that messaging has started to dominate the Republican psychology and belief that that's what they should be talking about. There are not enough Cuban voters. There are not enough Venezuelan voters. There are not enough... Honduran, El Salvadoran voters. You add up all four, five, six of those emigres from socialist or communist countries, you're still at less than 10% of the Hispanic vote nationally. It doesn't make any sense. It arguably makes some sense in one key state, and that's fair, but it's, your, your, your message is unrelatable in the other 49 states that you're trying to win in. And that's the same sort of problem that the Democrats have when they keep using these racial identity messages and messaging and this doubling down on the border, doubling down on kids in cages, doubling down on family separations. Those are important issues. But to a second or third generation Hispanic Latino, they're no different than they are to a second or third generation or fourth generation non-Hispanic white person from Europe who's just offended at it because it's just bad. It's being a bad human. It's not being bad for, for racial or ethnic reasons. And that's the mistake that Democrats make. And they lean into this. They can't help themselves. They believe ultimately that at some point, in some way, every Latino is waking up in the middle of the night worried about being deported, even though their family may have been here for six generations. That's just their messaging. And it's no different than what you see from Republicans doing the same bullshit by believing that this anti-communist Cuban messaging somehow translates outside of Miami-Dade County. Just, it just doesn't. It just doesn't. And, um, or it doesn't to any, it certainly doesn't to any marketable effect. And that, I think, is one of the, 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 the silos, these echo chambers that each party gets themselves locked into. Um, 
So, Pat, thanks for that question. I hope that answered, you know, what you were trying to get at. Um, there's a couple of others here. Uh, Vermont, Greg, is there a single issue that's hooking people or is it highly targeted? It's a great question. Um, the, the answer is, I mean, yes and no. We, we're at a point now where we're doing voter targeting. We're slicing and dicing the electorate so thin my belief and the way I approach campaigns is that 95% of this stuff is baked in. Okay. In some races, maybe it's a little bit less in some races it's more, but in a presidential campaign, this stuff is baked in. There's not a wide swath of movable voters that does not exist. When you head into the general election, when the Republican national convention's balloon drop is all done the Democratic balloon drop is all done and all the confetti has been wiped up off the floors. America goes into its own separate red and blue foxholes. And when I mean there are very few undecided, I mean there are very few undecided, like less than 3%. I would argue it's, 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 it's probably 1%, maybe even less, like a half a percent. But let's say it's 3%. That 3%, of course, is scattered nationally. And just math dictates that they're living in the most populous states. So what are the four most populous states? California, New York, Texas, and Florida. What do those states have in common? I would say four of those four are already decided states, two blue, two red. Maybe I'm wrong. Worst case, it's three out of the four are already decided. Let's say Florida is competitive, which it's not, but let's just say for sake of argument that it is. So if you take that 3% and you run that across all of those voters, you know, in a, in a polling sample, polling survey, most of those are going to be in the most populous areas because that's where you're getting the biggest numbers out of. You start looking at the Wisconsin's, you start looking at the Georgia's, you start looking at Arizona, you start looking at North Carolina, you start looking at Nevada, kind of these true toss-up states, they're getting hammered with so much messaging for so long, you're not moving any voters in terms of public opinion. It's why we don't focus on persuasion as political consultants anymore. The art of persuasion was lost really with my generation. I'm not, not an old guy, but I'm not that young anymore, okay? The, what we focus on now is mobilization. We focus on turnout, that's the key to winning campaigns now. You're not convincing Democrats in any meaningful way to come over and vote for a Republican anymore. There's just If that was going to happen, it already happened in 2016. There's just not a whole lot of voters. I'm not saying there are none, but there are very, very few Democrats who are like, you know what? I really thought Trump was a bad guy in 2016, but I'm all, I'm all on board with him now in 2020. Did it happen? Yes, it did happen, anecdotally. And, and But where it did happen measurably was with Hispanic voters. It did happen. In fact, it happened not just between 2016 and 2020, it happened between 2018 and 2020. And we can talk about why that happened in that year. But the whole nature and the whole tone of Trump's campaign from the midterms, remember the midterms were all about caravans coming, and Fox News every day heading into the midterms was, all these massive caravans, Central Americans are coming. They're going to invade. They're going to steal the vote. They're going to do all this shit. Of course, it ends the next day, and it was all a bunch of bullshit. But you never saw any of that heading into the 2020 election. Why was that? Because their polling was showing them that they were going to actually win the Hispanic vote or a large enough share to make them competitive that they needed in states like Arizona and in Georgia, certainly in Florida. And they were right. It's why they moved the needle. Had they doubled down on that kind of overtly nativist messaging, they would not have gotten as close as they did. You may not have seen that rightward shift that you did in 2020. You certainly wouldn't have seen it to the degree that you did. So they toned down that rhetoric. They shifted it. The build the wall chance. You never heard build the wall chance in 2020. They shifted that over to law and order messaging, which frankly is dog whistling against black voters in the wake of the George Floyd murder in places like Wisconsin. That's where they were really moving numbers with the law and order message, okay? That, it's because they were seeing their Hispanic vote numbers move into their column. So um, I hope that's, so, the, so I'm sorry. So in, a, in, a, in an environment when the vote is that stratified and that partisan, 
you have to spend a hell of a lot of money finding very, very small voter segments that are motivated by one intense issue that speaks specifically to them. So, Greg, it's a great question. The answer, again, is yes and no. It's not like you can just go in and talk about abortion and you're going to move Hispanic voters 10 or 20 points one way or the other. You have to go speak to 18 to 25, 18 to 30-year-old non-married Hispanic women who are U.S. born. And with that issue, yes, you can move the number considerably. It's not going to move with any other demographic under there, but it will absolutely move that voter. And that's a critical constituency. So, yes, there are one-issue voters. In fact, there are a lot of them, but there are long, very, very small voter segments. We used to, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you could move voters on one issue and you could see it change in polling results by five, six, seven, eight points. Those days are long, long gone, long gone. Now you're focused on these one-issue voter segments to turn them out more than persuasion to get them to the polls. It goes back to the argument I was just making about Democrats focusing on turnout and Republicans focusing on the margins. So I hope that answers um, that question. Uh, another question, is Beto in the Rio Grande area that you're still talking about? If so, is nonprofit did service work during the grid failure, et cetera, would activities like that increase Hispanic voting for Beto Democrats or not? Texas, I mean, Texas is one of those things, guys. It's just kind of the, it's, a, it's, 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 um, it's fool's gold for Democrats. They just, they want to believe that it's competitive so badly that they start trying to find all of these convoluted ways of making it competitive. Um, Texas has been moving towards a more purple position up until the last couple of election cycles where it seems to have bottomed out and it's now moving back into a redder position. Okay, Beto did not do as well as everybody thought he was going to do. And who was one person that was saying it from the day he announced? Me. I was saying he's not going to he's not going to win. He's not that competitive. And let me tell you why. And the vote totals came out exactly the way that I said that they were going to. Texas is not really a winnable state. It's close. It will get closer over time if Democrats can contain their Hispanic defection problem. And they show no signs that they're able to be doing that at this moment in time. So I'm not, I, look, I'm not ever going to say no, never, right? Like Donald Trump taught us to never say never. Anything can happen in this business, and sometimes it does. But when it does, it's for anomalous reasons. There's no data that is showing that Texas's demography is moving it to a better position. Uh, and again, it's great that Beto is organizing and he's doing nonprofit work and that they're registering voters and all of that stuff. I think that's all fantastic. But does that actually affect the real-term outcomes on a state the size of Texas? No, no. You just you you you're 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 like trying to find that needle in a haystack. And I get why they want to because if Democrats win Texas, then you cut the head off the snake. It's game over. I mean, the, everything's done. But Texas is not moving into that position. And I'm not saying it can't. I'm saying it's extremely unlikely. Okay, especially when we're heading into a 2024 cycle where the Senate map is really, really bad. Uh, Tanya, there's a question. Can a blue dog Democrat win Texas? No, no Democrat can win Texas. Okay, the last blue dog that won was Ann Richards, right? Or governor? Has it been that long? I was in college. It was 1994. I was doing my first couple of campaigns. I think that was the last time there was a Democratic governor of Texas, right? That's the, the prototypical blue dog was Ann Richards. No, a blue dog cannot win. Um, and it goes back to the reasons that I mentioned. Nobody is looking at ideology. Nobody is looking at policy positions to make these determinations, okay, in a general election. Like, you know who you're going to vote for. It's why I believe the Democrats are in such a strong position right now in terms of a re-elect. Why? Because you, you always have a, a decided advantage when you're running for a re-election. It's really, really hard to beat an incumbent. It's really hard. And in fact, when history is written on the 2020 race, I think, you know, the guys who are men or women who are doing the analysis are, are just going to realize how monumental the, 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 the lift was on getting Donald Trump unelected. Like it took a once in a year pandemic and, and a complete melting down of the economy 
to get a crazy SOB like Donald Trump in a position where he only lost by 30,000 votes across Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. Like that, that's how, that's how partisanized the state, 70 million people voted for Donald Trump. They're not moving. They're, they're, there's nothing you could tell those people that were going to convince them. And those that we did convince, we, we did. That's what that Bannon line stuff was all about. That's what the Lincoln Project stuff was all about. Are there Democrats that are gettable for Republicans? Yes, but less so. And those that are, are Hispanic voters. Because these Hispanic voters are not re-registering as Republicans. They're staying as Democrats, but they're voting Republicans. That shift is already happening. If it's a realignment, I don't know that that's the exact right terminology that I would use, but it certainly portends, it's a, it's a, it's a preview of, of a realignment. It could potentially happen. But realignments happen over, over many, many election cycles. They happen over decades. They don't happen in one election cycle, okay? I say this all the time. I should probably do an episode on realignments and what they actually mean. But for those of you that are old enough to remember 1994, 1994 was the last year of, of, the, of the Southern strategy realignment. The Southern strategy started in 1970, folks. The Southern strategy as a concerted strategy started in 1970. It reached full culmination in 1994. That's 25 years, okay? And it wasn't a straight line. It went, you know... Republicans would would uh, they would never win by the way Senate or gubernatorial statewide races. They started winning at the House level, but they started you know realizing, well you're really Republican on policy, but we're, we're just we're Democrats, right? These are these are post Civil War three four generations white non college educated voters were die hard Democrats. That was the party of the South. It was the party of the Confederacy. You weren't shaking that out, okay? That wasn't going to change. So it happened gradually. Republicans started you know, winning House seats. Then they would win a, a Senate seat every once in a while. And as the Democratic Party started moving further and further to the left on racial issues, Republican Party started moving further and further to the right. And then you have this realignment finally break with the contract of America. Newt Gingrich, who's from Georgia, right? He's a Southerner. The rise of Southern dominance in the Republican Party Um um, breaks the stranglehold that Democrats had that had lasted since the Civil War. The Democrats were the party of the Confederacy. That's how long it takes. Okay, so these things take a very, very long time. Um, running out of time here, but Greg's got a couple. Greg's got a question, so let me just read these out of the chat. What does DeSantis need to do to appeal to non-Floridian Hispanics and secure that vote nationally? And conversely, what do the Dems need to do to stop it? Great question, which is probably the question I should have been answering this whole time. But here's the bottom line. If DeSantis focuses very, very um, um, in a concentrated fashion on working class blue collar issues and leans into working class industries, including energy, agriculture, Mining, forestry, construction, big time construction trades, he's going to win a very significant share of the Hispanic vote. It is a blue collar Reagan Democratic voter. There is a blue collar culture. Okay. Democrats, if they can make the adjustment, and it's really going to be led by Hispanic candidates. Alex Padilla is perfectly positioned for this. Alex is a good friend. He's far too risk averse to put his stick his neck out right now. One candidate to watch which way his candidacy goes. This is going to be really fascinating. Is Ruben Gallegos? Okay, Ruben Gallegos' voting record very progressive, far more progressive than the Latino electorate. But he's going to run against Chris Cinema. Okay, and he's already got her negative so. Actually, I would argue, much more consistent with his own history, his own family background, his military service, his his work and life really, I think, reflect almost perfectly the emerging Hispanic electorate. Now, it's not, not a crack on Ruben. A lot of these guys get consumed by politics and start playing the party line more than they need to. But if Ruben Gallegos runs 
with an aspirational blue collar working class agenda and moderates, he could show a pathway for Democrats to stop the bleeding with Hispanic voters. He absolutely can. Will he? I don't know, but he's off to a hell of a damn good start. If you saw that ad that he announced with the past 48 hours, if you don't find it, take a look at it. You can find it on my Twitter feed or on my Mastodon feed, wherever you follow me. It's not that deep into my feed. Check it out. It's really fantastic. It's exactly that kind of messaging that will win these types of voters. That's what he needs to do. That's what DeSantis needs to do. That's what Biden needs to do. Biden has a lot of the pieces there. He's Irish Catholic, blue collar, not because he's religious, but because there's a cultural component, not a theological component. Same as Pelosi. Pelosi, of course, is from a wealthy family, wealthy money, privileged family. Biden was Scranton. It's a blue collar, working class Irish family. He says shit like malarkey. Like no one talks like that, right? His problem is kind of the problem that Democrats have traditionally had with guys like Al Gore running against George W. Bush. If you're a Floridian, if you're a Texan, if you're a Californian, you understand and you're comfortable with the Latino community. You just are. It's just part of your state. It's part of of your community. It's not that unique. Okay. If you're from the New England states, if you're from Delaware, if you're from um, like Gretchen Whitmer, right? Like there's there's no. She may be a great candidate and all that stuff. Pete Buttigieg. These are not people that have ever met Latinos before. I went to college with people like that. They're great people. A lot of them have never met a Mexican before. You're in the sunbelt part, the sunny part of the country. It's seamless. It's natural. So um, with that and with no other questions, guys, my voice is going. I'm going to have to um, call it quits here tonight. We're going to do this again next Wednesday. I want you guys to send me um, some topics that you guys want to talk about because otherwise my whole life is living this stuff right now. So I'm going to keep talking about this stuff. If you find it interesting, we can kind of keep exploring some of these thematics. I'm happy to talk about it because I'm literally living and breathing it 24-7. But I'm also following the news of the day. And if we want to talk a little bit more about some of these other topics, it could be a great break for me. Um, but I want to thank you all for joining. Um, we will do this again next week, 8.30, 8.30 uh, p.m. Eastern, 5.30 Pacific. Until then, we'll see you next week.